0: Church, let us pray once again and ask for God's help as we hear the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are the true and living God, and you have revealed yourself to us in your word. It is in your word that we see uh, the blessings of the gospel, uh, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so as we hear your word being preached this morning, uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts Give us understanding, stir up our affections, so that we may love you more and love Christ more. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder if growing up, any of you questioned your parents' love for you, or maybe for those who are married, if your spouse has ever said to you, I don't feel uh, that you love me. And well, I'm not proud of this, but my wife, Hannah, has said this to me more than once. And it's not so much in the context of an argument or a spur-of-the-moment thing, but in a kind of prolonged feeling. And at the risk of uh, digging a hole for myself, let me explain. Um, well, I met my wife, Hannah, in September 2019 uh, in China. And long story short, I came back to Australia in February 2020 because of COVID, and we started a long-distance relationship over Zoom for almost two and a half years, February 2020 to July 2022. And well, with that came various challenges. Um, Sometimes we wondered if our relationship was real, um, because it didn't feel real. Um, You know, we all experienced that at one point uh, during COVID, didn't we? Uh, It's one thing to live stream church, but another thing to be together in person uh, to worship God. And so my dear wife, Hannah, more than once, over the course of these two and a half years, asked me quite seriously, do you love me? Um, I don't feel like you love me. And well, the reasons why she said that are more complicated than just... um, that was a long-distance relationship. I, I could have done things better. But I hope you can appreciate that it's much more difficult. Uh, it's much harder in difficult situations, um, in this case without the physical presence of one another. Well, how did I respond to Hannah? And I'm not saying this was the best thing or the right thing to do, but I pointed out things in the past. Um, I tried to demonstrate that our relationship was real, that it was good, and that it was based on love. Um, And primarily, I wanted her to remember the promise that I made to her from the very beginning, that I was very serious about our relationship, and that I wanted to marry her. Well, this week we'll be starting a four-week series on the book of Malachi and in chapter 1, we'll see a people, the Israelites, who have forgotten, um, they're doubting God's love for them, and thus become indifferent to Him, especially in their worship. And we'll see this uh, this morning under two points. Uh, this is in your bulletin. Firstly, forgetting God's love uh, in verses 1 to 5, and profaning God's name in verses 6 to 14. Forgetting God's love, profaning God's name now before we come to our first point um, it's really important that we understand a little bit about uh, the context of malachi um, and just like maybe it was important to understand the context and history of uh, me and hannah and i've put some approximate dates in the bulletin to help you and well as you heard selena reading this passage you might have heard some names jacob and esau and just note, note for now that. They were born around the year um, 1800 BC. Some 3000, almost 4000 years ago. And the next important date is 586 BC. This was a tragic date for the Israelites. God used the Babylonians to judge the Israelites. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the majority of the people were exiled to Babylon. Um, This the temple, the city of Jerusalem, these were uh, not just the religious center for Israel, but the heart of their identity, the heart of their worship. The destruction of them also destroyed their identity. Maybe for those of you who are older, you might remember September 11, 2001. That shocked the whole world, and especially uh, America, and changed them forever. It shattered their sense of security, security, and identity. 586 BC was something of that magnitude for the Jews. But the Jews, they were not exiled forever. Uh, In 538 BC, the Jews were released from captivity and commissioned to rebuild the temple under the pagan king, King Cyrus. And, well, Malachi comes some 70 to 100 years after this, in the mid 400s BC, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so it is at this time, with this context in mind, that the Lord speaks to His people through the prophet Malachi. Um, so the recipients of this prophecy of Malachi, they maybe would have been second, third, fourth generation uh, returnees from the exile, maybe their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents came back, um, came back to Jerusalem from Babylon, and so they would have only heard of the days when the Israelites were Uh, Under the kings, they would have only heard of the magnificent temple that was erected by King Solomon. And so now let us come to our first point, forgetting God's love. What is the Lord's message to these people? What what did Malachi say to these people? Turn with me to verse 2, the first half of it. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? This is the first of six arguments between God and the Israelites in the book of Malachi. And in this first one, Israel is questioning God's love for them. They're basically saying, God, you say you love us, but do you really? You're all talk. Where's the evidence? How have you demonstrated your love? Now, We probably shouldn't be too quick to criticize them. This was how they truly felt. They couldn't feel God's love for them. Yes, they were back in Jerusalem, uh, but things were not exactly in a great state. They still had no king. They were still rebuilding their city, and they were still feeling the effects of 586 BC. And they did, in some senses, feel abandoned by God. And so they said to God, "Look at our situation. Look at everything we're going through. How have you loved us? We can understand that, can't we? Maybe when you're growing up, uh, when your parents didn't buy you that Game Boy or PlayStation which to you meant to you that they didn't love you. Or you know how they forced you to learn piano or violin or go to coaching school, maybe you were ignorant at that time, or maybe you just forgot. Um, the love they showed you in caring for you since uh, you were born. Now again, I know our parents are not and um, we're not perfect, but we do the same thing to our Heavenly Father, don't we? When we face some affliction or some trial or some difficulty in our life, without dismissing how hard these may be, we can so easily forget God's love and goodness to us in the past. We may complain in unbelief against God, Questioning what he's doing, questioning his love for us. It's easy to have a microscopic focus in these situations, but we just focus on the negative things that are happening to us and we forget the bigger picture. We let our situation dictate our relationship with God. Maybe for you older ones, you No, you remember the hymn, Count Your Blessings. Count Your Blessings. I'm not going to sing it for you now, but the first verse goes When upon life's billows you are tempest tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's one of my favorite hymns because it reminds us to remember what God has done for us in the past, to count your blessings and especially in life's difficulties. And so next time you're maybe doubting God's love for you, it might be a good exercise to do exactly that, to count your blessings. Remember what God has done for you. Now let's come back to our text. Look at how the Lord God responds to Israel. How does he answer them? How does he prove his love for the Israelites? Look at the second half of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Esau and Jacob, they were twin brothers. Remember, born around 1800 BC. And God proves his love for the Israelites by saying, by appealing to his love for Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. Now we may be thinking, what does God loving Jacob, Jacob, you know, 1,500 years before the time of Malachi, what does God-loving Jacob have to do with the Israelites in 450 BC? If I knew God loved my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, how does that change anything for me? It probably doesn't, to be honest. But there's a difference here. The great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Israelites was not just an ordinary man. He was a unique person. He was special to God. He was a unique person in God's plan of salvation. And that changes everything. It's kind of like if you come from a royal family, then your lineage does matter. It changes your life. It changes your identity. You see, as we trace the outworking of God's plan of salvation in history, we see that out of God's love, He chose particular people to make covenants covenant with, uh, with them and their seed, to save them, to redeem them to himself. Remember, covenant is just a special type of agreement or contract uh, between two parties. We see this with Abraham. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. But In Abraham's story, we see that it was not through his first son, Ishmael, but through Isaac that God chose to love uniquely because of his covenant. And Isaac had two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob. And again, God chose to continue his covenant promises through Jacob and his seed, not through Esau, the older brother. In fact, do you remember the name that God gave Jacob that night that he wrestled with him? Anyone remember that name? Yeah, Israel. Israel. It was from Jacob that the Israelites came from, from the 12 sons of Jacob. And that's why God uses this example. He's telling them, you Israelites, you are only who you are because of my love. I loved Israel, your father, and I've loved you, Israel, my people. This is a love from election. This is a covenantal love. And God is reminding them of his covenantal love for them in election. He hasn't abandoned them because he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and their seed, that they would become a great nation. And maybe most of all, that God would be their God, that they would be His people, and that He would dwell in their midst because of god 's covenant and because of His faithfulness to it, they should know god 's love for them now understanding this verse and this passage in uh, through the lens of the, the uh, covenant through election is clear. If we turn to the New Testament, if we turn to Romans 9 and we look at the Apostles Paul uh, his inspired commentary on this verse in Malachi, uh, Romans 9 verses 10 to 13. Here, Paul says that God's love for Jacob over Esau was not because of good works, not because he did anything that deserved it or earned it, but because of God's election or God's choosing of Jacob even before They were both born, right? None of them deserved God's love. Jacob didn't deserve God's love. Esau didn't deserve God's love. But God chose Jacob. You know, if you believe in Jesus, if you call God to be your father, this is because of God's love for you, that he chose you in Christ before you were born to be his child. Does that comfort you? Does that reassure you? no matter what you're going through at the moment, you know that God chose you, not because you are good, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, but because he set his love on you. Through Jesus Christ, we are brought into his covenant with him and with all the promises of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God forever. Church, we are God's covenant people. Now, if we look at verses 3 to 4, you may notice that God describes the destruction of Esau or Edom's land. Edom is just another name for Esau, just like Israel is for Jacob. And so Esau's descendants are called Edomites, Jacob's descendants Israelites. Here God shows the Israelites what it's like to not be in covenants with him. If God hadn't loved them by choosing Jacob and his descendants what would it look like? If God hadn't chosen them, they would have faced a similar destiny as the Edomites would have. Look at verse 4. How are the Edomites described? They're described as a people always under the wrath of the Lord. People always under the wrath of the Lord. They would never be prosperous or successful God punished them. In history, we know that uh, the Edomites, they faced uh, much uh, trouble from from the nations all around them, and they were destroyed. And it's stronger than that, because here we hear that if the Edomites try to rebuild, even after they're destroyed, the Lord will just keep destroying them. They'll never be able to build a city You know, it's one thing to be uh, sought by the FBI for your destruction. But it's a much more fearful thing to be under the curse and punishment of the Lord Almighty. And this is the fate of all those who are not in covenant with him. Now, verse 5 we see is addressed to the Israelites. Malachi says that they will see this destruction and their response will be worship and praise, saying, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. When they look past their own land, when they look past their own circumstances, they they get a better perspective of things. When they see this destruction of the Edomites, as sobering as that is, they will know more of who God is, of God's love for them, and their special privilege as God's people. For us, we live in Australia, and sometimes we complain. We complain about our government, interest rates, property prices, taxes, bulk billing, having to pay $40 to see a GP. And Well, I'm not saying we can't have complaints or opinions, but if we focus so much on the negatives, we may lose the fact that, on the whole, we live in a very prosperous, blessed country. It's not perfect, but you know, if we look outside of Australia, if we contrast ourselves to the average person in Asia, Africa, even Europe, even America, right, do we not see how privileged we are? Now, uh, Elliot mentioned um, that I have a six-month-old son, Sinclair, and. He agreed to be used as a sermon illustration. <laughs> did my son Sinclair, did he do anything to be born in Australia? Did he deserve it? Did he earn it? And maybe more to the point, did he choose to be born into a Christian family? Did he choose to be brought up and raised in church and to be baptized in a few weeks? All right. These are tremendous blessings that he will have. And by God's grace, he'll know of them as he grows up. He'll know and treasure Jesus to be his savior. But to be brought up in the covenant family of God from infancy, to have Christ and the gospel set before you, set before him from a young age, things that a child, say, born in China to a non-Christian family won't have. And that's how the Israelites know God's love. They didn't choose to be Israelites, did they? They didn't choose Jacob to be their father. Hypothetically, they could have been Edomites. But God chose them out of his love. Now, maybe some of you are still confused. Why does does God prove his love like this? Couldn't he have just given the Israelites money, food, shelter, security to prove his love, right? Those things are tangible, aren't they? Right? They would have said, yes, thanks, God. I know that you love me now. Right? If, if we were Israelites, we would think, God, you know, we don't need your preaching. We don't need your doctrine, your logic, your facts, right? And we're the same, aren't we? Right? If God gave me a house, a car, right? that relationship, healing from uh, long-term illness, even cancer, then I'll know he loves me. And and he could do that. He could do all those things. And that would be God's love to us. But listen carefully. God's electing love, God's electing love is the greatest, most wonderful, most life-changing love. It is greater than those good gifts that he could give us. And why can I say this? Because it's grounded in Christ. It's grounded in God giving us his Beloved son, to die for sinners like you and me. It cost God a lot. God sent his only son to die for sinners like you and me. So that all who believe on him will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know this love of God? This electing love of God in uh, loving us before we were born so the first disputation was first argument was about god's love there we saw god defend himself that he has loved them covenantally right? the greatest the deepest the most wonderful type of love now we come to the second disputation this second disputation disputa- <laughs> the second argument is about respect for god's love Sorry, respect for God's name. And in the first argument, we saw God kind of defend himself. And in this uh, second argument, God goes on the offensive. Uh, Let us come to our second point, profaning God's name uh, in verses 6 to 14. Firstly, let's look at verses 6 to 7. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me? says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? It's really sad when you see, for example, a wife who is doubting uh, her husband's love for her, whether it's founded or unfounded. If a wife doubts, her husband's love for her, that's going to change how she behaves, wouldn't it? Whether consciously or uh, subconsciously, she's not going to give him her best. Uh, She's not going to do everything with that same vigor and energy. She's going to be half-hearted in everything she does for him, whether in conversation, in intimacy, and so on. And that makes sense, right? If... If I think my husband doesn't love me, why put in all that effort? He probably doesn't care anyway. And so Israel's doubt of God's love caused them to profane God's name, to not care so much about what God wanted to do what was pleasing to God, um, to do what he commanded them. Even though God was their father and their master, they showed no respect for him. And here we see this, especially in the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel. See this both in their attitude and in their actions. Look at verse 7. God says that they were showing contempt for his name by offering defiled food on my altar. They were offering defiled food on God's altar. And how did they answer God? To paraphrase, they said, yeah, you know, we are offering defiled food on the altar, but why does that matter? That's only defiling the altar. doesn't affect you. doesn't defile you. And, you, you know, maybe they were thinking God is still holy no matter what we do, no matter how we offer sacrifices. So why does it matter if we offer blind or lame or diseased animals? But the attitude is maybe more telling. The attitude. We see this in verses 12 and 13. Let me read verse 13. What did they think of God's commands? Verse 13, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. It was a burden for these priests to offer sacrifices, especially the sacrifices that God commanded them. They did it unwillingly, begrudgingly, contemptuously. Maybe they justified themselves also saying, you know, we, why, why give these strong, healthy animals, right? It's a waste, isn't it, right? That's a Asian mentality, maybe Jewish mentality, if I can say that. Right. They're going to be killed anyway. They're going to be burnt up anyway. So why don't we just offer the sick ones, the diseased ones, the lame ones? Surely God won't care. Right. He's not going to eat the sacrifice. Right. And besides, we're not rich. We're not like the kings in the previous time, like Solomon, who could offer thousands, tens of thousands of sacrifices. Right? We're poor. We're still trying to rebuild the city. We're still trying to get up on our feet. But right, this was the state of the priests. They saw it as a burden to sacrifice to God. And so they only offered the useless animals. And maybe you're thinking, you know, why, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal to God? Why was offering these lame, blind, sick animals such an offense to God? Yes, we know that it was against the law of Moses, but is there more? Is there more to that? I want to I give you maybe part, part of the answer. The reason why this was so utterly uh, disgraceful abominable to the Lord God, is because by offering these sacrifices, they were profaning Christ himself. You see, the Old Testament sacrifices, they were pointing pointing forward to something. They were pointing forward to Christ, the Lamb of God, who would die, die for the sins of his people. Christ who would offer himself as a sacrifice for his people. Jesus Christ, without spot, without blemish. And that's why the sacrifices needed to be healthy. They needed to be strong, to be a good representation to Christ. We don't want a sinful savior, a diseased savior, a weak savior. We want a healthy and strong one. And so when they sacrificed these animals, by offering these sick, lame, diseased ones, They were disgracing the name of God. They were disgracing God's plan of salvation for them. They were disgracing the Son of God who was going to come into the world to die for their sins. Some of you maybe have started Christmas shopping. Maybe it's still too early. But when you wrap your Christmas presents, you don't wrap them in old recycled newspaper, do you? even though it's the gift, it's what the inside that counts. These sacrifices, they were to point to Christ. They were the wrapping paper, but it's meant to be good wrapping paper. The priests, they were meant to represent the people of God. They were meant to represent the name of God. They were meant to be ambassadors of God. But now they had profaned God's name. They profaned Christ. And that was the big issue. That was God's charge against them. This was serious. Take another example. Imagine if Pastor Elliot is coming to your house for dinner. And, well, you, you're not prepared, so you, you, you look in your cupboards. You say, oh, here's some dog food. Um, <laughs> or maybe you, maybe you don't have dog food. You, you look in your rubbish bin. Uh, where's, where's some leftovers that I threw away that are expired food? Right? Would, would Eliot be pleased? Would he be pleased? Well, that's exactly what was going on here. Right? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. God uses the example of the governor, most likely the governor of the Persian Empire, and he's saying, you wouldn't offer these diseased, lame animals to him, right, to this pagan governor, right, this man. Why would it be okay to offer it to me, to the true and living God, to the God who has loved you. Perhaps they deceived deceive themselves thinking, well, it'd still be pleasing to God. At least they're doing something, right? At least they're offering something better than nothing. At least they're going to the temple every day. But if we look closely at verse 10, look at verse 10. God's answer is actually maybe surprising saying, no, what you are doing is worse than nothing. It's worse than if you didn't offer sacrifices, if you didn't go to the temple. Look at verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. We see that the shocking thing is that for God, it would be better for the temple to be closed, for there to be no sacrifices, for then this kind of worship, this deficient worship to happen, this insincere, burdensome, contemptuous worship. You're meant to give your best to God, not your worst. That's so obvious, isn't it? We're meant to give our best to God, not our worst. How how couldn't they see that? If we were in their position, we surely wouldn't do that. We wouldn't offer these lame sacrifices, right? Right. We would only offer the best animal sacrifices to God. It's obvious. Well, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But what we we do know is we we can examine our own lives, can't we? Do you only give your best to God? Or do you only give your leftovers to God? whether it's our money, time, or our energy. And a good diagnosis for this is to look at your weekly schedule. Where does God fit in? Where does God fit in? Is it only if I have leftover time that I'll use it for God? If I don't have anything else on, on Sunday, I'll go to church. If I I have some energy left at the end of the day, I'll read my Bible, I'll pray. If I have some money left over, yeah, I'll offer it to the church. Or is it your priority to give your very best to God that the first thing you do, that the most important thing to you, is to give your time, the very best of your time, very best of your energy, very best of your money to God? Now, I know people uh, who get up in the middle of the night to watch football, Premier League football. Um, They don't want to miss a single minute of their favorite team playing. And I respect that. They're dedicated, passionate fans. But is that our attitude towards God and worship? That we don't want to miss a single minute of worshiping God, whether it's Sunday worship or whether it's our personal Bible reading and prayer. Do we guard that time as special? No one can interrupt me because that's important to me. You know, a few years ago, um, I went on a... Hiking trip with some friends from my previous church, and we left in the uh, early in the morning to go to Royal National Park uh, to you know, have a day of fun, and you know we arrived at our destination. Uh, we started walking. We started walking to the beach, um, if you if you know it, and we got to the beach maybe after half an hour, an hour, and I was I was I was ready to to have fun and play, and this is just a small thing but I, but I remember it really well, um, and it. You know, um, and it it affects me even to this day. Um, this uh, dear sister from my church just said in a quiet, unassuming voice, "You know, when we got when we got to the beach, you know, I have to I have to um, do my quiet time. I have to read the Bible. I have to pray." And you know, when I heard that. Um, When I heard that, I was rebuked. Right? I was rebuked at how I didn't prioritize my relationship with God. And you know, maybe I could justify myself. You know, I could do it later when I get home, probably be late at night, after. probably be low energy. I might not even do it. Or maybe I could say, you know, I'm hanging out with Christians. So that counts, doesn't it? Now, what about money? Right? What about money? Well, Pastor Elliot has just preached a four-week series on money. And you know, we all have things that we enjoy spending money on, don't we? Uh, might be new clothes, new shoes, new phone, new computer, um, good meal, or even buying gifts for others. Right? And Pastor Elliot has helpfully shown us that you know, doing these things are good. Right? We can savour in God's good gifts for us and spend money for that um, if we are intentional about it. That's a good thing to do. There's also things that we maybe don't really enjoy paying for. Taxes, uni fees, car repairs, stamp duty, and so on. And and I think think most of you um, who are regulars, you know that you should be giving financially to the church uh, to support God's mission, to support gospel proclamation and the furthering of God's kingdom. But what is your attitude towards that? Right. Do you see it more as a tax, something that you have no choice to do but to pay, right, a burden? Or do you delight in giving? Right? You delight because you're giving to God of your very best, of your hard-earned money, and because you're supporting gospel work in his church. You know, we may work hard to save for new phone, new car, mortgage on a house, um, and that's good. But do we work hard to save so we can give more to God? Right. That's, that's one of the things that uh, Elliot has hopefully been um, challenging us with the, in the past few weeks, hasn't You see, we may be unintentionally doing the things that these priests were doing in Malachi's time. They were offering things. They were going to the temple to serve God. They could tick those things off the the box. But what they were doing was utterly dishonoring to God's name. God had poured out so much for them. God had loved them so much. And this is how they repaid him, by treating him as less than a man, treating them worse than they would treat themselves, treating him as a nuisance, as something getting in the way of their life. And, you know, this is actually what the third commandment is about. Right? I hope most of you know the third commandment. You shall, not, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The third commandment is not so much about just using God or Jesus' name as a swear word. Right? It's much more than that and it especially applies not to non-christians but to christians right? to those who call themselves god's people to those who call themselves christians to those who go to church right? because if we bear the name of god if we bear the name of christ we 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 really dishonor god we dishonor god if we do not live as he commands us to do if we do these things, uh, if we treat him like second best, uh, if we treat him as unworthy of our very best. I wonder if this is a concern to you, that as a Christian, you may be dishonoring, profaning the name of God, not only to other people, to those who can see you, but to God himself. Do you care about the name of God that, as a Christian, you bear? Do you want his name to be great among the nations, as we see in this passage? How does your life live up to God's requirements of you? Is it a burden for you to be a Christian? You know, when we were growing up, we might not have really understood why our parents sent us to coaching school or uh, violin lessons or piano lessons. And your parents probably told you, if you asked, they probably said, well, it's good for you. I'm doing it for your own good. Maybe you didn't really understand that at the time or you didn't agree with it. But maybe as you matured, as you grew up, you understood that more and more. Once you got into uni, you started working, you're like, wow, my parents really loved me. And... As a kid, maybe, I don't know, maybe you could have had uh, two different reactions uh, to your parents forcing you to go to coaching school or do all these extracurricular stuff. If you didn't really know or feel your parents' love for you, most likely you would have rebelled against them, maybe even disrespected or dishonored them. You would have said, my parents don't love me. They're sending me to coaching school. You, you maybe even treated them as not your parents. But if you knew your parents loved you, most likely you would have obeyed them, um, willingly, um, trusting that, yes, what they said is, is right, right. It is for my own good, even if I might not understand it uh, right now. It's the same with the Christian life, isn't it? Yes, we fail, Like the Israelites, we don't always give our best to God. Our conduct is not always worthy of the gospel of Christ. But if our relationship with God isn't grounded in God's deep love for us, especially his choosing us in Christ, then I think we cannot change. We cannot grow in our faith. We cannot learn to obey God willingly. The Christian life will be burdensome. To us, won't it? Because our faith, uh, how we live, will be very dependent on our circumstances, our feelings, our feelings of God's love, um, and that's usually uh, wrong, our wrong feelings, and our obedience will feel burdensome, especially if we can't understand why God is asking us to do certain things. So, what's the solution? Uh, I've hinted at it already. It it, starts by knowing, by remembering God's love for you. Not just abstractly, not just saying, oh, God loves me, but concretely. And so um, in your bulletin, I have two questions, and and I might actually start with the second one. This is for um, you to reflect on your own. Is, Is being a Christian a burden to you? Do things like Bible reading, prayer, going to church, uh, CG, giving financially, get in the way of your life? Is that that how it feels for you? And the first question, do you know God's love for you? And I added, if so, how? Do you know God's love for you? You Can you write down and describe how you know God loves you? And I believe that if you do that, uh, if, if you know God's love, then the second question uh, will be solved by the first question. If we grasp God's love for us and let it sink deep in our heart, by God's grace, you'll be able to continuously draw on God's love in good times, but also in difficult times. And it's best to prepare when things are going well so that you'll have that reserve to draw on when things are not. And so let me finish by uh, giving a summary, maybe a conclusion to uh, what we've heard from God today. God's love for us, for you, is demonstrated in His choosing us in Christ before you were born, before you did any good or bad. All of you are in church today. Right. And that already demonstrates God's love to you, that you have, whether been brought up in church or whether you as an adult believer or even as a visitor, even if you don't know Christ today. By virtue of coming to church, you are privileged to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You are able to hear of God's love for you, that God sent his only son to die for sinners. That you have the hope of forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. That we know and we can take hold of Christ, the Lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, who was offered for us so that we could be in covenant with God. And for those who trust in Christ, the promises of the gospel tell us that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the Holy Spirit who applies all of the benefits of salvation. We we no longer need to offer animal sacrifices, but God calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him, which is our reasonable service. And so when you read, when you hear that God loves you, when you're tempted to doubt God's love, I hope you don't respond by saying, How have you loved us? But instead you say, Yes, Lord, you have loved us. Yes, Lord, you have loved us. And we love you too, because you first loved us. Immerse yourselves in God's love for you in Christ, so that in your life, you'll be able to say, as Paul did in Corinthians, that the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me. It drives me to live for Him. So that it's not a burden, but a joy, even in the midst of trials and adversities, and so that we worship him with our very best every day, every week, every moment, until Christ returns. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love to us. How little we know of your love, but we know in your word you sent your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. How great is your love. How wonderful is your love. Help us by the Holy Spirit to know more and more of your love, that we will live in joyful obedience in service to you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.